So, welcome to the uh, inaugural edition of the politics podcast run through the Francis Parker Weekly. I am your host, uh, Sammy Kagan, and I have with me a lovely panel of four. We have Junior Grayson Garrelick. Hello, Grayson. Hello. Thanks for having me on the panel. Of course. <laughs> We've got sophomore Ian Shane. Ian is one of our political brief writers at the Weekly. Hi, Ian. Hey. Hey, Sammy. Um, we have senior Maya Songvi. Maya Songvi is the news editor at the Weekly. Hi, Maya. Hey, Sammy. And finally, we have uh, senior Axel Berlin. Hi, Axel. Hi. How's Thank you. Yeah, how's it going? So, um... The general idea of this is not that we are going to be, you know, competing with anything you could find on, like, the <coughs> Apple Podcast Store or anything like that, because we can't. If you want your political coverage, you should go listen to the New York Times, you should go listen to the Washington Post. But the idea behind this is that our our sort of talk is going to be aimed at a younger audience. You've got a group of young people, everyone is 18, or, either of you guys 18? Today I am. Oh, Happy really? Birthday! Happy birthday, Axel. So we've got, a, we've got a group of people, almost entirely 18 and younger, sitting down to talk. We're all interested in this sort of thing. And uh, the hope is that whoever you are, you sort of uh, are falling to that demographic as well. We're going to start off um, this first edition. We're going to sort of talk about the State of the Union and use it as a way to talk about politics in 2018 at large. The State of the Union, historically is not terribly impactful in the long run. It's a big deal when it happens, but the polling implications are virtually none at all. Um, people very rarely remember states of the union unless something goes terribly wrong. Uh, but it is a fantastic way to assess the, uh, the president's policy goals and sort of uh, begin to get a pulse on what the next year is going to look like. So uh, I wanna start by opening it up to general thoughts on the State of the Union, thoughts on optics and thoughts on rhetoric. You know, Trump obviously has sort of a reputation for being a little bit wild when he gives speeches, um, and so so that so there's something there. But also, you know, what do you say? What was that like? So I'd say, okay, first of all, talking about um, you know, as you said, it's sort of his his wild speech making capacity that you know typically he displays. I think one of the interesting things about this State of the Union was that it wasn't that wild. It was kind of boring, honestly. Um, I wasn't that, you know, riveted or, or that repulsed by anything he said. Um, however, I also wasn't, uh, you know, in, ama in amazement at policy. You know, he, he didn't really discuss policy. He talked a little bit about immigration policy that he kind of wants to enact later in 2018, but, like, he didn't, policy wasn't the focus of the State of the Union, which normally it is, so I was a little put off by that, I guess. Um, Axel, what do you think? Yeah, I thought it was, I also agree, it was kind of boring. Um, but he tried to make it interesting by parading all these people from the audience. Like, that normally happens, but it seemed like he had, like, even more theatrical choices, like when he had the North Korean guy mm -hmm. and stuff. And just, I thought that spiced it up a bit. Uh, for the uninformed, Trump had a uh, North Korean defector uh, in the audience as uh, he called upon him and he stood up and it was sort of a, a moment of triumph against obviously an adversary that the United States has been uh, tense with as of late. Um, what about comparing it back? He gave a joint address to Congress a year ago or almost a year ago and it was in a lot of ways very similar so I would almost rail against this notion that it's unique in its similarity. Did you see anything that, that, that you would use to compare uh, the State of the Union from his address to Congress, Grayson? This, uh, the, it, they, both speeches seemed awfully similar. They both had um, <laughs> these individuals come in with similar, t similar stories and 
Um, yeah, I thought that they were both pretty similar. I will say that um, the one difference is obviously that you know Trump has a year of you know being in office to you know discuss his accomplishments and what he's done and what he you know has is going to try to achieve in the next year. But yeah, I think in general, you know, these State of the Union addresses are, you know, important for a news cycle. And then the next news cycle mm -hmm. comes in and, you know, that's what we're going to be talking about. And do you have anything you'd, you'd like to say before we move on? Yeah, I have a lot to say, actually. So, um, <laughs> it, it wasn't, it, it clearly wasn't like one of his extemporaneous speeches where he'd go on tangents here and there. It was presidential. I, I saw it. It was professional. And I'm of different political persuasion than much of Trump's base. But I mean, so I think I have the right to say it was good. I thought I thought it was a good speech. It was tame, but I didn't like how you mentioned the national anthem. I, I I have a lot to say about that. I think that was wrong, and uh, that actually leads me perfectly into our next question, which is that for this State of the Union, Trump sort of doubled down on what he's been doing in that he went towards a sort of very conservative base. He sort of he sort of moved right on the State of the Union as opposed to moving towards the center. He he did talk about the national anthem with the NFL. He brought in the little boy from California, Preston, who was the one who was sticking flags on all the um, memorials for the soldiers. He talked about domestic economic prosperity in America first. Is that wise? Is that a good idea for a president giving a speech that that doesn't really matter? I, I think that the national anthem stuff and the you know patriotic aspects of Trump's speech, you know, it shouldn't really be of right wing or left wing. And I think it's a sad state of American politics when you would when you'd say that talking about the national anthem is uh, a conservative thing. You know, it should just be like an American thing. So I think that most Americans will get behind you know that sort of thing. So I, I really don't see it being uh, too controversial to talk about the flag and talk about you know Americans doing good things. My sort of squirming, yeah. Disagree with that a little bit. Um, I think. The significance of the national anthem right now at this moment in America is is in connection with the NFL protests and um, you know the Black Lives Matter movement, and I think that's something that Trump is has very much put himself on the right of, um, and so in that way, like I do think it is kind of significant that and not centrist that he would talk about something like that, um, and. I am curious as to so okay I think it's pretty clear that this 37% of you know people that support Trump kind of no matter what um, they're probably not going to be swayed either way um, but I do think with the 2018 midterms coming up uh, it's interesting that he didn't he didn't even try I don't think to, to be center and that's you know kind of atypical I think you think so you yeah know, you, 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 you still sort of feel like you got you got some well, stuff going on well, yeah, I, de I definitely agree with that, but like, I'd like to go back to this national anthem thing. It's yeah. all about disrespecting the flag and stuff, but I mean, we use that flag to sell mattresses, we use that flag to sell <laughs> beer, we wear that flag as a swimsuit, so like, we disrespect the flag every single day, and I mean, it's just, it's just a distraction on the fact that there's little being done on healthcare, and North Korea is the biggest mess since the Cold War. Grayson's now sort of, sort of moving in his seat. I mean... Look, I, I, I don't think that uh, that people having swimsuits that have the logo of the national anthem on it would be an example of um, disrespecting the flag. However, you know, to a more broad point, I think that in our sort of small community at Parker, you know, where uh, oftentimes we have people sitting down for the national anthem during you know the the basketball games at Verse Latin and homecoming and whatnot, you know, this issue seems you know like it's pretty 50-50, right? Like, you know, but 
you know, in America and pe- you know, people in the middle of the country that primarily carry Trump to victory, I think that his, I think that those people are not going to be like uh, so thrilled about Democrats sitting in their hands or sitting with their hands in their lap when uh, Trump's talking about the national anthem and how Americans should stand for the national anthem. And does that play towards a broader theme of, of patriotism, looking at the guests, getting back to, to Preston and, and the 12-year-old boy? And is that sort of wise for the Republican Party going towards the midterms to sort of turn around and play to their base as opposed to trying to capture a, a wider percentage of the electorate? Axel, I want to hear from you. Yeah. Uh, so I think there is a difference between talking about the national anthem and the flag when you're talking about football versus talking about it when you're talking about dead like dead veterans and or and stuff like that. So and he what he was talking about it in more like military sense, so I think that's kind of bipartisan that like you know like military people when they die get carried out in like a flag c- casket. It's just kind of a bipartisan thing and like you know just talking about respecting that flag is in that context I think is fine. Okay. Anybody else have anything to say, or should we should we keep going? Great. So, um, one of the biggest things about his speech is something that he didn't say, which is that he completely omitted Russia. He didn't he didn't talk about Russia at all. And no matter what your belief um, is on how the and how Russia is sort of playing out, it's undeniably been a large part of Trump's first year in office. It is undeniably a news story. Um, he didn't mention Russia. Why Why didn't he mention Russia? Why didn't he, you know, if he disagrees with it, why didn't he attempt to discredit it? If he, you know, believes that it's ridiculous, why didn't he attempt to, you know, show that we have a diplomatic relationship with Russia? Why forget it entirely and just sort of let people play it off on themselves? The truth is, this is something that Trump should be doing, should have been doing, you know, the whole first term of his presidency. He should, you know, let the investigation carry out and just shut his mouth, to be honest. And if anyone asks him a question... Have his lawyer answer. Like he, he just, he just can't keep his mouth shut, and it makes him look, you know, guilty, because you know whatever, whatever you think actually, you know, went down. I think, I think it's clear that it would better suit Trump if he just kept his mouth shut. So then, I, I, forgive me. Um, what what do you then make of that in the context of the State of the Union? I think that he had a, a script, and I think that his speechwriters. Uh, especially knew that, you know, if he went off the cuff, he could get himself into trouble, which he's done, you know, a lot. So I think that, you know, they didn't put Russia in because they didn't want him to, when he saw something about Russia, like if he, if he simply just said like, you know, it's the investigation's wrong, whatever, whatever he, they didn't want him to, you know, sort of take that line and probably expand more and say something that he shouldn't say. Well, just mentioning Russia is kind of undermining his successes, and it just distracts from the fact that he wanted to show us that he's done a lot of great things with the economy, which I th- which I think he has, but that's another debate. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I also think, you know, he's sort of right. I agree with that, Ian, and I think he also had to omit Russia because, you know, the State of the Union isn't supposed to be oh, these are all the things that I'm being, you know, held accountable for, and, like, these are things I've done wrong. You know, normally you want to say these are the things I've done right, and here's the policy that I want to enact, that kind of thing. Um, I do think, though, it. I mean, obviously it did feel like a, a pretty glaring hole that he left just because it is such a big news piece right now. Um, I, I, Yeah, to Grayson's point, I'm not sure there's a way he could have addressed it 
that wouldn't have gotten, you know, that Democrats wouldn't have then been like, oh, like, obviously you're guilty. So I don't know. I don't know that he should have addressed it. Yeah, I, I, but if I remember correctly, he, he did say the word Russia like once or maybe once or twice in the speech, like not the investi- investigation, but the way he, he was saying like, we have a lot of competition, like we have China to work against Russia right. and then, so like he kind of made it, like that was like the traditional American president way of dealing with Russia. So Donald Trump's approval ratings have been increasing lately they've been they've been uh they had been in the mid 30s for or the mid to high 30s for a lot of the past few months they dramatically decreased after inauguration day about one percentage point a month but as of late they've been ticking up or you know trending uh steadily towards 40 they got uh um, what I use is the Real Clear Politics poll aggregator and the 538 poll aggregator, and those both had him above 40% for the first time since May, just a few weeks ago, and he sort of hovered around there. Um, do you think that this sort of this Russia is a, is indicative of a more sort of subdued Donald Trump that we've seen in the past uh, few weeks or month? There haven't been a whole lot of incidents uh, comparable to those that sort of uh, marked the first few months of this administration. Besides the shithole country. Yes, yes, besides that. Uh, but, I mean, the fact that we've had one story, maybe that and Stormy Daniels, in the last, you know, month and a half, two months, I would say is rather remarkable in, in today's political climate. Uh, I think maybe Trump is getting better at sticking to his speeches. Um, I I don't know that it necessarily means his his actual political views have shifted at all or his lack thereof. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't know that necessarily says anything about his character shifting at all. Is that a winning strategy, though? Yeah, yeah, I, I do think so. I also think um, something that lends to his increase in approval rating might be the tax cut, because, um, you know, in terms of big businesses and um, people that that's going to benefit, that is certainly something that, you know, his Republican base um, supports. But Trump sort of so Trump sort of uh, took his path to victory was very unconventional. But one of the biggest sort of pulls for him was that people liked his sort of raw style. His you know I'm not a politician. I'm just going to speak my mind and you know uh, sort of almost if you'll forgive me crass style of campaigning. Very different from the norm. Will a Trump that's more subdued be able to sort of keep on trumping? Yeah, I, I think that it's really. I think that I think more Americans are going to you know vote in the midterms based on Trump's ac- accomplishments or or you know for his shortcomings. And I think that in December he had a really really good month of, po- of policy. I think he had the the tax cut, which you know you could say it's you know going to benefit big business, but you know eighty percent of people are going to get a tax cut and when they see. And right now only forty forty four percent. Well, you know I think what Trump should have done in the State of the Union regarding to the tax cuts being permanent and the Republicans want that is to say you know what well if we're gonna we're gonna put up these tax cuts we can we're gonna make them permanent if the Democrats support it because the Democrats will say oh middle-class families are gonna get their taxes raised in 10 years well okay you know if you're gonna say that then you know we should vote on making them permanent and I think the Democrats I'm, I don't know if the Democrats would vote for that Do you would you vote for that making the tax cuts permanent no, probably not. I I, <laughs> I mean, I would say um, the conservative view on taxes is certainly not the one that I take. Um, I think 
you know, the issue with the tax cuts now is that we've dug ourselves into a, de- a bigger deficit. And if Trump, you know, he talks a lot about infrastructure, like if he actually wants to enact any policy um, in improving the infrastructure in America, like he's going to need money to do that. And he's, you know, got this $1.3 trillion plan, uh, dollar plan to improve inter- infrastructure, but he only has like, what, $200 billion of that, like actual money, and the rest of it he thinks is going to come from like big businesses. I don't, I just, I don't know where money's going to come from if if we continue a tax plan like that. And that leads right into sort of this next discussion of policy, and that was that in the State of the Union, he specifically, you know, sort of away from economics, but he specifically went after immigration. He talked a lot about MS-13. Some of his uh, guests pertain to that. Um, And there was a big line that people kept quoting, which was when he stood up and he said, Americans are dreamers too. (laughs) Does that sort of contradict his advocacy as of late for a uh, Dream Act passage? I think it does, and I think it's kind of like the all lives matter of the immigration debate. Okay. I, I think it paints like um, all Mexican immigrants under one brush, and I think that's that's really bad. It gives white supremacists, white nationalists, a phrase to use, and I, I just don't like that. It's only problematic. So Axel, he 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 rejected. Um, a bill that was brought to him through a bipartisan coalition uh, led by Lindsey Graham and Dick Durbin. They sort of they they came together with this immigration bill, and he had supported it one day and then rejected it three days later. Do you think taking a harder line stance makes it more difficult for um, for an immigration bill that is bipartisan in the long run? Yeah, I, I definitely think it does. Like, I think it's good to for the two parties to work together and stuff. Like. I remember watching Chuck Schumer, and Chuck Schumer was like, Donald Trump negotiates like jello. <laughs> like, he just always, like, he'll say something and then just not do it. You know, I just don't think it's, I don't really like that about him. I think that um, this, you know, I think that Trump, it, you know, the idea that Trump's even open to uh, granting a pathway to citizenship for 1.8 million dreamers, I think that that, like, that kind of shows that he's not, you know, this crazy guy. And I could, I, I'm going to promise everyone on another panel this, everyone listening to the show this, <laughs> Trump will not deport dreamers. It's not, he will not deport dreamers. He does not, he, I don't think he, I don't think he should as a matter of policy. I don't, I don't believe in that. But I also just don't think that Trump himself would even think about doing that because he is a guy that's really nervous about, you know, political consequences for actions that he has in terms of policy like this. So I think that, but I think that with that said, I think Trump has has to remember that his base is has a hard line stance on immigration, and they're going to be pretty upset if he you know grants 1.8 million uh, people uh, pathway to citizenship without um, getting some of you know their immigration reform goals. So I think that the Democrats are the Democrats and the Republicans you know should come to to an agreement with you know Trump's priorities. With that, you know, with some of that being ending chain migration, ending the uh, the visa the, or visa uh, visa lottery, um, maybe some reforms to just uh, the, just the immigration system in general, like for legal immigration, and possibly you know more border funding. And you know, I know Trump wants the wall. If you know if they can get the funds for that, then I think that that would be a deal which both sides get what they want. So I, I uh, I'm sorry, I don't I don't, don't want to cut you off. I want to follow up on one thing that Grayson said. Uh, you said you don't think he'll deport the Dreamers, but the Dream Act 
So this, maybe this is what you were going on. The Dream Act expires on March, or expires mm-hmm. for the few who are unlucky enough to have that date, it would expire on March 6th, right. 2018, is the first day that people will start being forced to leave the country, the first day that some dreamers will begin to lose citizenship. Do you think there's a chance that he doesn't deport them, but that the Dream Act just sort of expires and, and this the dreamers just sort of have to leave? I think that there's a chance that the Dream Act expires. I I really don't see that happening. I don't. And I don't think that the dreamers are going to be, you know, forced to leave in any way different than the 11 million uh, illegal immigrants are going to be are forced to leave now. Like they, you know, but I think that as a as a matter of policy, I don't think Trump will uh, tell ICE to deport dreamers. I think the interesting thing about that is. Yes, but I, I do think it has been, you know, there's been a lot of reporting about how Trump um, doesn't necessarily think the dreamers should leave the country, and, you know, he does support them as, as most Americans do. Um, but I think it would be very easy for him to be complicit in, in a Republican, you know, plan, or, or just, just a congressional, um, like, inability to create any sort of policy that you know, protects the dreamers before March 6th. Um, I know February 8th, which is my birthday, by the way, um, um, they, you know, they, they've said that they will create some sort of, some sort of, like, legislation before then, um, but I, I, I could see a, a situation where, you know, they just don't do that, and then Trump becomes complicit in, in this, you know, uh, deportation of, of dreamers. Um, well, could I just ask well, a question, like for the viewers, like clarity, also kind of for myself, like dreamer, dreamers are just like children of undocumented. Yeah. Uh, no, what is it like? Ian, Ian, you know what it is, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I did a idea. project like in Houston last year right? about dreamers. It's like people um, who came into the U.S. as children. They could be really old now. Could be in their thirties and stuff. But they came in um, with their parents illegally. So, um, many of whom, and there are, like, educational requirements that make it so, like, these dreamers, this is why it's gotten so much support, because they are required to have high school degree or GED, so. Are they still, do they have citizenship? No. So, so what happens is, uh, the, the Dream Act, there are a lot of people, you know, if, if your family decides to move when you're seven years old, you... you, you you're gonna you're gonna go with your family. You're not gonna say I'm seven years old. It's time to go live by myself in, in you know wh- wherever. Um, so if you were brought into this country when you were I want to say under the age of sixteen, um, mm-hmm. I, I think it was sixteen. Um, then you were granted citizenship through this Dream Act. But the Dream Act was not a, citizenship. Not legal, that's legal right. Status. That's right. You granted exactly. legal status, and it was a rolling two-year legal status. Not. So you had to reapply for it every two years. But it was never a law. It was an executive order put forth by Obama. Ian's right there. Educational requirements. You have to either be going for a high school degree or have a high school degree. And uh, I don't think you can have committed a felony. And I don't think you can have been dishonor- dishonorably discharged from the military. Um, and so it's so it's a group of people who uh, are sort of in the United States. Um, have been in the United States ha- since they were children. Yeah, you know, grown up here. Um, okay, got it. And and that's that that's who the dreamers are. That's probably good to talk about just uh, for anybody listening who might not be up to date on the nuance of that. So, is it is it is it difficult for them to find a deal now now that you sort of know know what you're talking about here? Um, <laughs> I th- I guess so. Yeah. I mean, the way I've heard also is that the word dreamers is kind of like a political catchphrase. They're like, just to make it seem like they're, you know, attached that they're all dreaming of like a better life here. But I do think 
Trump has a point that there are American kids that are in poverty that also have like have a dream like want to you know do the American dream so it's like do do what are the priorities like uh, people from other countries or like dreamers of our own country the thing is I would say that you know people dreamers these you know young adults who are living here have lived here since they were children um you know they're very productive people in society it's not it's not like you know and also they're not I wouldn't really consider them from other countries at this point I'd say you know in the same my family came here from India like but like now we're like American because my mom was yeah, born but here. Like, like they're Im- like they're they immigrants. were immigrants <laughs> so long ago and and now you know they're I was listening to a podcast um, that had a uh, immigrant who went to Harvard Law School and is now like a neurosurgeon here, and like you know, it's not like I. I think the idea that we can only, you know, that America can only support either our own struggling lower class, those children, or these dreamers, like that's the, they're totally. It's not mutually exclusive, um, and. I think that's sort of just a misconception. But I don't think Trump's saying that it's, you know, mutually exclusive. I'm not saying you're saying that he's saying that. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> like, yeah, I don't, I think, like, you know, with particularly speaking that, you know, the point Americans are dreamers too. I think that that is a powerful message to a lot of Americans who kind of see the political system and see how it's going and say, you know what, I feel like they're debating about, you know, in their opinion, uh, illegal immigrants more than they're, you know, debating about policies for people like me. And I think that for them, like, for a lot of people, that's like a fair claim. So I, I don't really have much of a problem with what Trump said. And you know, in terms of this deal, you know, on DACA and immigration, I think the ball is really in uh, Chuck Schumer's court here because I think a you know a, a Dream Act will pass in the House, and I think that it's up to Schumer to decide whether you know it's worth compromising on this. You know, is it worth is it worth you know giving Trump some of his giving Trump an accomplishment on to his base on you know. On, Im- on just uh, border security and you know some some immigration priorities as well. Like and that's I think it's really in his the ball's really in Schumer's court. Well, I, I don't think that um, a bill will pass the House because it was introduced in two thousand one by Durbin and Hatch and it has never is never passed. Durbin and Hatch are senators. Yes. Yeah. Well, yes. well, in Congress, in in either house, it hasn't passed. Nothing's nothing's really nothing's happened. So since two thousand one. So I think that's ridiculous. And also, I want to clarify, DACA, um, for many people, inspired uh, expires, not the Dream Act. Oh, that's correct. Correct. Ian's correct. Yeah. Thank you, Ian, for holding us to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to. We're just winding down right now. Um, I want to conclude by very, very briefly getting uh, remarks on the Democratic response, which was delivered by Joe Kennedy the Third, uh, the uh, I believe grand nephew of John JFK, the grandson of RFK. Uh, Maya, you seem very excited. So I I did really like his response. Um, I think. Uh, so he had that really powerful line about how, um, you know, Trump sort of supports this idea that, like, people are can be judged based on who they... He said, like, who they want to marry, what the color of their skin is, their nationality, and, and the god that they choose to worship, that kind of thing. Um, and he said he sort of totally denounced that idea, and his, his thesis was, like, um, you know, the American dream says that we support... Or, sorry, the, the like... Heart of America, the core idea of America is that we support everyone, uh, and you know we want to advance everyone. <laughs> uh, sort of, you know, whatever. That that that's what America stands for. Um, and I, but I do think that that sort of his speech really showed the the huge gap between the different parties at this point. You know, because 
he was really very much supporting the rights of, of minorities and underprivileged people, whereas, and whereas Trump's whole speech was sort of very patriotic and, you know, for the rights of businesses and, and lower class white people, like that kind of thing. Um, and so they did seem very irreconcilable. Irre- irreconcilable. We understand what you mean. Yes. <laughs> um, and I, but I did like his speech. Okay. Um, I apologize. I want to wrap it up. It's 8.03, which means that by, by Parker time, it's 8.05. Um, just a note, Joe Kennedy is a uh, congressman from Massachusetts. I want to end just by getting uh, one sentence from each of you on wh- uh, what did you see from the State of the Union? What are politics going to be in 2018? Got to sum that up. What's going to be the biggest part of 2018? I like, I like the way you look. Go ahead. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, she's got like bulging okay, eyes. So I hope that um, 2018 sees a big change in the, uh, you know, the poli- the politics of Congress. I hope the political double double standard doesn't get played out again. Jeez, one sentence. Um, I was already my sentence. Um, <laughs> I I hope that um, the State of the Union uh, will grow stronger. <laughs> I want there to be more bipartisan deals and just, you know, talking between Democrats and Republicans. Okay. Uh, thank you for listening. If you made it this far, this is the first episode of the podcast. Thank you to all of you for uh, sitting down. Grayson, Ian, Maya, Axel. Uh, this is fantastic. And uh, I don't know, I guess maybe if this went well, we'll uh, see you again. Thank you. <laughs>